Welcome to the Glindborn podcast. I'm Peggy Reynolds, and in this podcast, I'll be exploring some of the themes and stories behind Rossini's La Cenerentola, or Goodness Triumphant. In 1816, Rossini was looking for a new subject. He was only 24, but he'd already established himself as a leading composer. When he was only 10, he'd written his first sonatas. But it was his famous opera, The Barber of Seville, that established his name and reputation. But then, how to follow that success? By late December 1816, Rossini still did not have a subject for his next opera. So one cold winter's night, according to the librettist Jacopo Ferretti, he and Rossini sat down over tea to thrash out the possibilities. Suggestion after suggestion was rejected. Too serious, too controversial, too difficult to stage. The hours went by. Rossini gave up and got into bed. Then Ferretti murmured, Cinderella. And Rossini was wide awake. Would you have the courage to write me a Cinderella? Ferretti replied, Would you have the courage to set it to music? Well, that music was composed with typical Rossini speed in 24 days, and the opera premiered on January the 25th, 1817. Today, we're all familiar with the story of Cinderella. We know about the ugly sisters, the glass slipper, the fairy godmother, the magical transformation. But the essence of the story is very old and very widespread. The writer and mythographer Marina Warner explains. Well, Cenerentola is a version of one of the oldest fairy tales in the world. It's so old that the first version that we know of, which is 9th century Chinese, shows signs that the audience already knew it, that the way the storyteller tells the story, he or perhaps she is addressing a group of people to whom the story is already familiar. In, um, in the beginning of the 19th century, the Grimm's were collecting their stories in Germany. They were beginning to do it, but the, their collection doesn't come out till 1812. And Rossini seems to have been using a libretto for an earlier opera. So I don't think that the Grimm's the rather famously violent version of Cinderella has any effect on the Rossini at all. It's closest, possibly, in terms of to a literary source, to Charles Perrault's 1697, um, from Contes du Temps Passé, Tales of Olden Times, or Mother Goose Tales, which is still the canonical collection of nursery fairy tales in the world. And it has the major ingredients, including the comic tone. Perrault is fairy tale, but fairy tale with a tongue in his cheek. And he likes to draw a moral, but to draw it a little bit ironically. He ends his version of Cinderella saying, this story shows how it's very important to have a very well-placed godmother. So he's making a kind of satirical remark about the society of his day, in which it would indeed have been important to network and to have protectors at court. 
but he's also showing that this paragon of a heroine does achieve recognition and success. So Rossini and his librettist Ferretti could be very sure that their audience in 1817 would know from the start where the plot was going. Their Cinderella is called Angelina, and her signature tune is a sad little ballad. Once upon a time there lived a lonely king. He found three women ready to marry him. He scorned wealth and beauty, choosing instead innocence and goodness. Angelina should tell, or rather sing, her own story, even while she lives her own story, is typical of the sophistication of this opera. In early 19th century Italy, the theatre was a truly democratic place. Marina Warner. Rossini, I suppose, was turning against the tradition that opera opened a magical space of the supernatural. Earlier opera had relied on gods and goddesses as well as fairies. But here you have an opera that is actually speaking very directly to its audience. It was not nearly so elite then. Italian towns were full of people going to the opera, and every Italian town had an opera house. And so in a sense, this is much more, you know, a social communication in which people would recognise their own concerns. And the chief concern in the opera is about the absence of control of money of women. And that underlies a lot of the preoccupations of fairy tales. Often they are literally about trying to find a way to get married where you're not being married off, women looking for their own autonomy. And I think that Rossini was alive to that. He was quite sensitive to that. Rossini's Angelina is exploited and neglected. None of the political implications of this would have been lost on an audience who had witnessed the French Revolution. Sir Peter Hall directed Glyndebourne's La Cenerentola in 2005. It's very much uh, uh, the product of the 18th century moving into the 19th. And you have to think about Byron and Byron's humour, Byron's wit. You have to think about Pushkin. Um, and you think, have to think about romanticism about to happen, but not having got there yet. And this is, a, in that sense, a... a a telling of the Cinderella myth in terms of the Enlightenment of the 18th century and of social patterns. Rossini is a man of the post-Enlightenment, very much after the 
French Revolution, very much after all the radical thinking of the 18th century. Um, he's not into fairies and mysticism and magic. Nothing happens in the opera of Cenerentola which is outside the manipulation of this uh, Voltaire-like character, um, Alidoro, who is the tutor and mentor of the young prince. In Act One, it is Alidoro who turns up disguised as a beggar at the house of Don Magnifico, a nobleman who's fallen on hard times. A group of courtiers appears to announce that the prince will soon be here in search of a bride. Don Magnifico's two favoured daughters, Clorinda and Tisby, rush off to dress. Prince Ramiro does indeed then knock on the door, but he is disguised as his valet Dandini, and it is Angelina, the neglected daughter, who receives him. So when Dandini then comes in, all dressed up as the prince, Don Magnifico and his two daughters flatter him obsequiously. When Alidoro checks the census list and asks about the third daughter, Don Magnifico declares that she is dead. Alidoro comforts Angelina and assures her that she will go to the ball. palace, Don Magnifico makes the most of the wine cellar. Dandini reports to the prince that the daughters of Don Magnifico are frightful. Suddenly, a new arrival is announced, an unknown beauty who is admired by all. Beginning of Act Two, the ball is still in train. Dandini, as the prince, attempts to charm the fair unknown, but she tells him frankly that she is in love with another. The supposed valet hears this confession and presents himself. Angelina gives him a bracelet as a test. If he cares for her, he will find her. Don Magnifico's house, the family are all bad-tempered and Angelina is ordered to prepare supper. Outside, a storm blows up. This is the real transformation scene in Rossini's opera. The storm may represent a natural phenomenon, but this is a moment of pure magic conjured up by music alone.
As the storm rages, Dandini, this time as his own self, enters to announce that the prince's coach has overturned. When the prince comes in, Angelina recognizes Ramiro, and he recognizes the matching bracelet on her wrist. In the final scene, in the throne room of the palace, Angelina appears again in a dress fit for a princess. Don Magnifico now tries to make up to her. All she asks is that he should acknowledge her as his daughter. Altezza, a voi mi prostro. Angelina may be good, but she is not simple. The music Rossini writes for her is highly decorated. Vladimir Yurovsky is the music director of Glyndebourne Festival Opera. Well, of course, when, when you say Rossini, the first thing one thinks about are the coloraturas. Coloraturas are the landmark of any Rossinian piece. And very few people actually give a thought on a subject, why did Rossini write so many coloraturas if it, as we know, anyway it was a, a habit of a time to decorate the pieces with coloraturas. It must have been Rossini's fury with the liberties these singers took with his own pieces and pieces by others. And it must have been the wish to impede bad taste in spreading around, and also to preserve his music from these amendments which would make it absolutely unrecognizable. So he started to write out all the coloraturas in such a way that nobody would have a thought of adding something to it, because this in itself was already so difficult to perform. To me, whenever Rossini writes something, it makes an absolute musical sense. And his coloraturas never just serve the technical purpose. They're never there to help singers show their technical capabilities. They're always to underline something in the music which otherwise would remain understated. So 
Vladimir Yurovsky's argument also works with the political element in La Cenerentola. This is a heroine who never loses the sense of her own identity. But given that she does have Angel in her name, it may seem surprising that Rossini has given this part not to a high-voiced soprano, but to a low-voiced contralto. But I think we can make a psychological case for the lower range of women's voices carrying particular power in painful historical circumstances. During and after the Second World War, for instance, it was the warmth and comfort of the low voice that attracted audiences and fans. You only have to think of Kathleen Ferrier or, in a more popular vein, Edith Piaf or Vera Lynn. Maybe Cenerentola has to be a contralto, because even in this romantic comedy, she is the voice of the mother who understands and forgives, who is all sympathy, kindness and goodness. This is, after all, the story of goodness triumphant. (laughs) ¶¶ 